Welcome to the Daily Reflection Podcast. This is Thomas M. My addictive personality still exists today, 37 years later. I am of the belief that it doesn't go away. What changes is my ability to understand its manifestations in my life and to apply a set of tools at any particular time to that manifestation. There's a theory in spirituality that says we're closer to God in our sin than we are in our sainthood. If you're listening to this, write this down. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. And oftentimes in recovery, what we're looking for in God is certainty. And that's not God. Welcome to the Daily Reflection Podcast with your hosts, Michael L. and Lee M. On this show, we try to bring inspiration through interviews with members of the recovery community. We are not aligned with any 12-step or recovery programs, but you will hear them mentioned throughout the course of an interview. On today's show, Thomas M. from Florida. Before we get to the show, I'd like to ask a favor. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or a podcast network that enables you to leave a comment or a rating, we would love to hear from you. It's going to help us improve the show and expand our reach. You can also join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash daily reflection podcast. Hope to see you there. We hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning, Lee. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great, Mike. How are you this morning? Um, fantastic. Another great day. What's going on today? What's what's on tap? So today we have Thomas M. He's uh, in the studio today from Florida, and uh, it's March 26th, so he's going to be sharing with us on the daily reflection for today, which is the teaching is never over. Fantastic. Well, Thomas, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we start the show in the same way every day. Uh, we ask the guests to read the daily reflection for today. Would you help us get started? Happy to. March 26th, the teaching is never over. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Alcoholics Anonymous, page 164. These words put a lump in my throat each time I read them. At the beginning, it was because I felt, oh, no, the teaching is over. Now I'm on my own. It will never be this new again. Today, I feel a deep affection for our AA pioneers when I read this passage, realizing that it sums up all of what I believe in and strive for, and that, with God's blessing, the teaching is never over. I'm never on my own, and every day is brand new. I love that paragraph out of the big book, but I also resonate um, with the words afterwards. And I'm curious, how how do they resonate with you they, as you read it? I think there's a lot of different elements to the, you know, most importantly, the end of the 164 pages of the big book. And so, you know, you can look at the beginning of that and the way that Bill lays it out. It's the second time in which he encapsulates the entire steps in basically four sentences. Right. So he does that in his story. But here, when you think about the idea of wanting the most um, uh, concise and clear approach to the steps, you have abandoned yourself, which is steps one, two and three. Admit your faults, which is really four, five, six and seven. Clear away the wreckage of the past, eight and nine, and give freely of what you find, 10, 11 and 12. And so one of the things I was taught early on was if you really want to kind of have a pocket version of the 12 steps. It's another way in which Bill gives that to us. And one of the things I personally like a lot about Bill's writing is he returns to the same themes, words, uh, and usages over and over again. And so I think it's one last time to say 
you know, this is what we're about. So I love that. And, and I can clearly remember the first time I hit the 164 as I was reading it with my sponsor and thinking that, well, maybe a, a major part of my journey into recovery is over and, and thinking, thinking about that um, tentatively. Yeah. Uh, what was that like for you? Yeah, so I remember reading that as well. So when I got sober, it was right around the 50th anniversary of AA. And they were talking about the you know the national, international conventions. And I was trying to figure out whether I could scrape $20 or $100 together or whatever it was to kind of go there. And uh, I remember it was at that time that I probably felt I, uh, my sponsors had me read every single piece of literature there was. And so I was really connected to um, this feeling of the founders. Uh, and what their message was. And I had uh, I had almost a tangible sense of loss that I would never get to meet them and be a part of their world. Uh, and so in that, in that context, Mike, I had a lot of identification with them. And I think that's one of the things that you look back on and you realize that that's another point at which you connect into recovery, right? That greater fellowship of the spirit that Bill's talking about, that you get a sense that you are, and I think more importantly, want to be a part of this greater universe. At the time, we had a guy in the area where I was living that uh, knew Bill well uh, from his uh, recovery. And, you know, we all used to ask him questions, right? Because you wanted some tangible reference back. Uh, but it was important to understand that Bill was really, for me, uh, learning later that Bill is really setting the stage for all of us to say this is a, you know, this is a fellowship of the spirit, and you want to connect in with who's in with you now, who's around you. That it's about the journey that you're going to take together. I think as you know, Lee, you're asking about Louis, who uh, so Louis and I have known each other 35 years, uh, and both in recovery for th- you know 35 plus years, whatever it is, right around there, and so. You know, you're going on a journey with these people through the through through your life and recovery, and I think in some ways that's what Bill uh, was writing about. I think the other thing that's really interesting to understand about the literature, which I think about a lot more, to remember, we only have two real writings from Bill at the end of the day. This was written by the end of his fifth year of sobriety, right? So imagine this kind of insight at five years, and then his writing of the twelve and twelve, which was a whole different proposition. Um, uh, but I think I think. You know, we we come back to formatively for me, Bill's conversations with Jung about belonging, about what we're all looking for. And, and one of the things you take out of that particular uh, conversation and the writings that we had with Jung, which I really identified with, with Mike, all the way back to your question, was I wanted to belong. That's really what I wanted at the end of the day. I was scared when I got sober that there were somebody's going to ask me to leave. I've been asked to leave everywhere I ever was in my life. I was convinced someone was going to say, you can't have this. You don't belong here. You're not right. You're not worthy of the, of the seat. Uh, and Bill, I think in some ways throughout the particularly more so than the 12 and 12, but throughout the big book returns to this theme of belonging as a critical element, because I think it's what Jung told him. We're all looking for that sense of connection. It's beautiful. And I, I love your knowledge of the history of AA and the, you're talking about Bill W, our first member. Yes. I'm curious as we look at Bill's story in the big book, how do you identify with Bill's journey into need you know, into recognizing that something needs to change? What was your what was your drinking like before you came in? So I was uh, both a drinker and a drug user, and because I started out so young, uh, drugs were more available 
easily in the state of New Jersey than liquor was. And so I was poly addicted. I had older sisters. And, you know, at that time we used to talk about the pace at which access to chemicals sped up your bottom. Right. And so I was one of those kids that my drug of choice in many ways at certain times was crystal meth. Uh, and so, but I had poly addictions going on. I think it was important for me to understand that every single substance I ever got my hand on, I abused. Uh, the first meeting I ever went to was at a small church in Flemington, New Jersey on Main Street. And I was sat in the meeting. Uh, the person at 12 stepped me said, you know, you probably need to go to a meeting. I sat in the meeting and I listened to everything. And at the end of the meeting, uh, I got up and I left. I was booting, you know, heading, heading out of there. I had no idea who was there, why they were there. I didn't get any of what was going on. And I was, you know, making my way back to a car and a guy ran me down on the street. And, uh, and he said to me, uh, you know, what's your deal? You know, what's your circumstance? Why are you here? And I you know, said, look, I think I'm mainly a drug user. And he said, oh, really? I was too. And I said, well, this is AA. And he said, well, you know, I, I was too. What was your drug of choice? I said, crystal meth. And he said, I was brought in three times DOA to the local hospital on crystal meth. And I've been in AA at that point, five or six years. And so I think lead to your question was, it was that moment of identification uh, for me uh, with a person that understood. So if we go back to, I think, you know, again, formatively with Bill and Bob, the thing that Bill understood, and I think the part that differentiated Bill and AA from previous movements, Bookmanite movement and other ideas about sobriety, was that Bill understood that he needed someone around him who understood the disease concept. And his meeting with Bob was that moment where both of them said, hey, I, I feel this way too, right? And I think formatively for all of us in recovery, and for me, it was that moment where someone said, I felt like you do. I did what you did. Because I know my feeling in drinking and using was that there was a terminal uniqueness to me that I was the only one that felt this way, acted this way. I viewed my drinking and using um, as different and more problematic than anybody around me. Although I was of the camp that it was the only thing saving my life, but certainly I did not drink and use like others around me. And so the first person to validate that, you know, was this guy, George. And you think about what happened with Bill while he had Dr. Silkworth and others telling him, you have a problem. It wasn't until he sat down with Bob that he found identification, which is a much different conversation. When you came in and you found this fellowship and you started to, to straighten out spiritually, mentally, physically, did you, did you find that you struggled with other issues? And um, I guess what I'm really asking is, did you have other addictions or did other, other problems surface? Yes. I think if anybody in AA says they don't have other addictions, I'm not sure they belong in AA. So, you know, I've been sober, what, January is 37 years. I think I've been addicted to everything there is in sobriety. And I think the idea that sometimes gets proffered is that somehow we reach recovery and there is a Shangri-La ahead is something that we need to be careful and thoughtful about. I would tell you that for me, my belief fundamentally is that I have two underlying conditions. One is I process alcohol differently, or in other words, I have an allergy, right? So I do process alcohol and narcotics differently. But I think the other point for me, which is a critical element, is that there are underlying conditions and reasons why I drank and used. I was looking for a solution. I was looking for an outlet. I was looking for a pathway. As long as I can remember, I was always that kid who was ill-fitting, who was discontented, disquieted. I grew up in a very violent alcoholic household with three older sisters who were affected by alcoholism. It was just that perfect storm, but I was looking for something all along. And so, Mike, the good news, I got sober, right? 
And so the chemical was uh, removed from my life. And I had a good, I had a good 18 months where that was pretty darn successful. Right. And one of my sponsors used to say, anybody can stay sober on 18 months self-will. After that, you'll start to see people slip because you're going to notice that that's when work starts. That's when life sets in. And through all of that, that's when the problems of life and challenges presented themselves. And so whether it's been spending or women or uh, jobs, status, power, um, prestige, all of those addictions, there's food, sugar, uh, cigarettes, caffeine. Uh, The first two years of my recovery, I think, I don't know, I've smoked three to four packs of cigarettes a day and I drank, I couldn't tell you how many cups of coffee. And so I don't, my addictive personality is still exists today, 37 years later. I am of the belief that it doesn't go away. What changes is my ability to understand its manifestations in my life and to apply a set of tools at any particular time to that manifestation. Um, and so I, you know, back to your point, I don't, I would love to be singularly addicted and have it cured the day I walked in, just wasn't my story. But I think the silver lining in that, had it come easy and had it been simple, I would not have stayed. The thing that's interesting about recovery is that I still am challenged by it. It still presents itself to me in different ways. I have been through therapy countless times to work on certain issues. I have used other 12-step programs. I have continued to try and avail myself of as much as I can to understand the demons that are in there because they, you know... Um, they exist. Uh, and I'm of the belief that you have to understand that. Uh, one of my sponsors used to say, my character defects will be gone three days after I'm dead. We sometimes think that recovery and God are Santa Claus and a ticket to paradise. And they are that. They are that. But we have to also understand that there is a significant amount of reality that life dishes to us that AA teaches us and the toolkit we're given teach us to deal with. It doesn't exempt us it prepares us. And I think that's a really important distinction that oftentimes we tend to lose in the early year luster of, hey, you know, I just found this cool thing. I love what you're saying. And it's actually tying beautifully with the daily reflection because it says, you know, after the first pass through the steps, oh no, the teaching is over. Now I'm on my own. I'll never be this new again. Cause you know, that first 18 months you're talking about is this beautiful Shangri-La of like, I was telling Mike sunsets and rainbows and all the stuff you haven't seen in so many years. Then he says, today, I feel deep affection for our AA pioneers. When I read this passage, realizing that it sums up all of what I believe in and strive for. And that with God's blessing, the teaching is never over. I'm never on my own. And every day is brand new. And it's, it occurs to me as you're sharing the uncovering of all of these other things to fill the hole in the soul with, like it's a new opportunity to learn more and to dive deeper and to uncover more stuff. And I don't know, maybe potentially get closer to the higher power that, you know, we come to connect with in this program. Would you agree that it feels new again? Yeah, I, I would. And I think, Lee, one of the, the things, one of the ways I would say what you're talking about is there's a theory in spirituality that says we're closer to God in our sin than we are in our sainthood. And I think ultimately that's true, right? That our continued challenges in recovery keep us close to our God. And so we experience him much more there. I think there's a corollary to that. And that is most alcoholics struggle more with success than they do failure because we're failure wired, right? But I do think that that does drive us closer to a relationship with the God of our understanding. And I think, you know, the coda to the, you know, the 164 is as we trudge the road of happy destiny. And I think it's important to understand it's not the two. 
And I think the other, I was told to look up early on in recovery because I remember saying to my sponsor with some few choice words about it, I'm not really interested in trudging to anything. And of course, a good sponsor says, go get a dictionary. And a trudge is a slow, deliberate walk. And I think that's, again, a longer term challenge for people in recovery. So I often use a sporting analogy to say this. AA is a program of hitting singles occupied by home run swingers, right? So we all want big victories. You know, this is, again, one of the reasons why Bill's uh, afterward around spiritual experience was so critical was because in the way the original 12 step was worded was having had a series of spiritual experiences, right? And remember, they changed that towards the end when they published the steps. I find that to be much more like my experience. I continue to trudge this road of happy destiny. And I think that's important for me to understand uh, that God's manifestation or a higher power, however folks would describe that, that is a continual unfolding. To end your question, I would say this. I understand less about God today than I did 37 years ago. I'm less sure about God today than I did it was 37 years ago. I think the difference is I'm comfortable with that being the case. I think early on, it's the desire to better define God so we can better control God and understand God. And I think one of the benefits of, of the journey for me has been less desire to control and define that particular relationship. doesn't mean it's less present or important. It just means my understanding of it continues to evolve. And that's really hard. The concept of time is hard. I remember when I met the first person that had 10 years of sobriety, that was just staggering to me. You have what? Wait, how many? <laughs> right. And I remember passing 10 and 20 and 30. Right. It's just crazy to think that, you know, I'm 58 years old. I've spent my entire adult life in recovery. I don't know anything other than this. And that's staggering to me to think that that much time has gone by. I remember trying to put five together, five people together for a new, uh, for a young people's meeting. You have to understand that sobriety is evolutionary, right? It's revolutionary at the start, but it's ultimately evolutionary. You expressed something about as, as you go further into recovery, you understand less about your higher power. I'm interested in your conception of a higher power and how you, I mean, we're in the third month and we, you know, we talk about the third step and turning your life and your will over to a higher power. How do you do that if you don't quite understand, if, if maybe a newcomer is listening and they're, they're wondering how to do that? Right, because faith is ultimately about the, you know, the, the, you know, substance of things that are unseen. Faith it, in its very core is that I don't understand or, or can't predict or define. And I think uh, that is the place you ultimately have to get to. It doesn't mean the absence of God. It means the presence of faith. You know, the opposite, one of my favorite lines of all time, if you're listening to this, write this down. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. And oftentimes in recovery, what we're looking for in God is certainty. And that's not God. Uh, AA is the proposition, the faithful proposition that we don't know how or why this is going to work, but we think somehow it, where it will. Mike, I think the important part of the third step for me is this. I want what God wants. In my heart of hearts, if you cut me open, I want that. Do I understand God every day? I do not. Do I act in accordance with whatever God's will is every day? I do not. There are days that I would be AA of the year, and there are days I'd be drummed out by the group. But what is consistent in my heart since I took that third step is I want what God wants. It's hard sometimes to define that or understand it, but I can tell you that's what I want. And I think that's where God operates is in the theater of the heart. Remember, we tend to judge our connection to God and the quality of our relationship with God to the outcomes in our lives. 
And sometimes that's true, but very often that's not the best um, indicator of faithfulness or connection to God. So to answer your question, if you're a newcomer, find a conception of God that you're comfortable with, which is what I did. And there's most of my recovery that's been the more traditional Christian God. I would probably tell you I've moved away from that thought in some ways. But you have to understand that there is a higher power that is important to your recovery, that this is ultimately a program of the spirit. And I would define spirit as the melding of the heart, mind, and soul, right? And so it's a program of that, and that in order for you to travel this journey, there's a fellowship of spirit with your colleagues in recovery, and there's a fellowship of spirit with the God of your recovery. You need to have both. For those that are new, and, and we have you know people that listen to this podcast that, that haven't even found it into the rooms yet, yeah, and that's okay. one of the... One of the uh, beauties of this is that we're able to reach people that maybe haven't quite decided whether they belong here or not, or maybe there are people listening that are relatively new and, you know, and they just don't have a concept of, of what God or higher power is yet. What's your thought about, you know, just pretend to have a concept of one until you can find one. I mean, we do know that the purpose of the book and the purpose of the program is to help us find something that we can connect to. So it doesn't necessarily have to be found right off the bat. But how do we do this if we have nothing right off the well, bat? Well, I think, I, you know, Bill outlines this, and I, I, I could probably think hard enough and recall where it is. But basically what Bill suggests to us is that first, our faith is in the group. And then our faith is in, you know, a person or two. Again, sponsorship isn't mentioned in the 164 pages. I know it's popular to mention you have a sponsor, but that's not a concept that Bill really had. Uh, but but you do need to have a relationship with, right? And then once you move past that, a good sponsor leads you to God, right? So it's if you think about that, your first faith, the second time, you know, and I remember the second meeting I went to, someone described it later, was that's the moment, that's the moment you understood faith because you showed back up. So now you understand what faith is. But I had faith in AA first, and then I met a guy who became my sponsor, and I had a ton of faith in Michael. And it was critical for me to have that faith in him and belief in him. And, and you know, Michael carefully guided me through many years of recovery. But ultimately, that has to translate to a relationship with God. Again, you know, Bill talks about this in different places in both books, but most notably in the big book, this concept of ultimately, it's going to be you and your maker at some point, you're going to need to have that foundation. I believe that that moment, and of course, he talks about it most notably in the fifth step, but I ultimately believe this is, again, a concept that he returns to, uh, that we have to have a foundation upon which we can rest, right? And that foundation is ultimately, you know, uses the analogy in the book, but that foundation is ultimately your relationship with God. When I was about 12 years sober, I was working uh, on Wall Street and the bank I worked for uh, asked me to go to Moscow, Russia for three years. So this would have been 94, I guess, somewhere around there, 95, and open up a correspondent you know, relationship bank over there with some other partners, et cetera, et cetera. And I went to Moscow thinking there wouldn't be meetings. And I remember having a concept, you know, conversation. Remember, there's no internet. This is 1995. <laughs> Right. I remember having a conversation with my sponsor about, well, how do I do this? What does that look like? You know, what, you know, we had telephones, of course, but how do I manage that? But it wasn't even a consideration that I wouldn't go. It was you have a toolkit and you have resources and you have a particular foundation that you've laid. It should be sufficient. And Bill, of course, talks about that when he talks about the stories of people in World War II. And so I think ultimately you have to arrive at this relationship with your God of your understanding such that it's foundational. Now, I view a lot of that foundation as building a toolkit. So I can share with you that every single morning, 
I read, write, pray, and meditate. And I've done that for 37 years. I try to talk to another alcoholic every single day. I try to make sure that recovery is a part of my life on an ongoing basis. So over 37 years, I've never not gone to meetings. I've never dropped out of this or that. I've taken service commitments, all those kinds of things. I've sponsored, been sponsored, all of those things. At the end of the day, what I would tell you is that's the foundation. That's the way you experience God. You don't experience God as much by sitting there saying, hey, you here? <laughs> you who? You experience God by saying, these are the tools that I use in order to make sure that I'm spiritually centered. And of course, 86, page 86 talks about that at greater length, which is a good place to, to find that. But it's about the consistent use of the toolkit. That is the evidence of your faith. That's the foundation of your belief. Um, there's an old saying, again, that I like a lot, change happens where grace and effort meet. And you got to have both. Well, Thomas, this has been a phenomenal discussion. Um, I want to give you space to um, to let the audience know anything else that you'd, you'd like to share with them. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that you two are doing this. I think that uh, when Louis mentioned it, it was a wonderful concept. I uh, The idea, Lee, that you're reaching people that may not ever know about who we are and what we're doing, I think is, is terrific. I love to see the continued evolution of our message uh, and the idea that uh, there's a different platform to share. And to connect, I think, you know, for all of us, COVID has imposed conditions that we would not have otherwise wanted. But I think this, again, one more time, uh, goes to the idea that out of uh, difficulty can come uh, great uh, opportunity. Uh, one of my sponsors used to say, all gifts come wrapped in barbed wire. Uh, and I think that there is some truth in that. But what I, I love what you guys are doing. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. I, uh, I know you've had great guests before and certainly hope that, uh, uh, that this, um, uh, this continues. Because I think for all of us, there are different ways that we'll experience uh, recovery fellowship and the opportunity to trudge the road to happy destiny. Thank you, Thomas, for stepping up and doing this with us. Yeah, I appreciate you asking. Thanks to Thomas for stopping by. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. We truly appreciate your support. If you want to find us online, you can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Daily Reflection Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Daily Reflector. You can read about recovery on our blog at blog.dailyreflectionpodcast.com. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.